welcome to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast, the show empowering and educating people on how they can grow, manage, and protect their wealth through real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Bailey Kramer. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Kramer, and today we are joined by an awesome guest. She's a short-term rental host and manager, private lender, and crowdfund operator and educator. Her name is Alex Brashears. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited. We have a very awesome topic today of the private lending world, something that I don't think people talk about too much. It's not as clear as a lot of other industries and, and segments of real estate. So super excited for that part. Before we jump in to the private lending world, give us a quick background about yourself and how you got here. Absolutely. So funny enough, I'm actually a chemistry professor as my <laughs> W-2 job. People are like, what does chemistry have to do with you know real estate? And it's actually very simple. Um, so chemistry, the, the part of chemistry that I'm involved in is called organic synthesis. So I'm basically formulating molecules for drugs, for pharmaceutical companies. So you have that end target in mind, just like in real estate, you know, you have that end target, you know, I want to have a thousand doors if you're in syndication, you know, I want to have five uh, single family homes if you're in short term rental. And then you basically have to do the process of working backwards. So I know this is what the goal is. How can I get there? Okay, you know, I need $450,000. How can I get $450,000? Okay, well, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. I could know these other people. And you just keep working that back until you have action steps to take today. And that's really all organic chemistry is. It's, you know, it's using the tools and the information you have available to you at that time to make the best, best next step. Um, so that's that's how chemistry kind of fits in with real estate, in my opinion. Uh, I'm also a military spouse. My spouse has been in the service now for 21 years. So we've moved 19 times in 21 wow. years. Um, so it's really been very difficult, very much of a challenge to invest in real estate actively, quote unquote, actively, um, because, you know, we've lived places three months, six months, you know, the longest we had lived anywhere re until recently was about 22 months. And real estate, as your listeners probably know, is not a very fast moving asset. It tends to be very illiquid. So if you're only going to live somewhere for three months or six months, that barely gives you enough time to really kind of do any market analysis, much less, you know, <laughs> buy a fix and flip and then turn around and sell it before you have to leave again. Um, so we actually did not invest in real estate for a long period of time just because of we were just constantly moving we have now settled down a little bit, which is what kind of led to all of this. And kind of the final step in that real estate investing journey, um, as far as getting started, would be that COVID hit. You know, people talk about, you know, all the implications of, you know, and after effects of what's been going on with COVID. Well, when the world shut down here in Virginia about mid-March, a lot of hard money lenders literally shut their doors. They're like, we don't know how to price in this, this risk. We don't know what's going on. We're just going to take a beat. And uh, I just happened to know another active duty service member in the area. We were in one of these virtual networking things, which is brand new, you know, back in March of 2020. And he mentioned he was going to be losing out on a deal because his hard money lender pulled out at the last minute. And I was like, well, tell me about the deal because he's local in my market. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's connect offline. 
And we just kind of, he was, it was the exact type of property I would want to lend on. It was the exact type of borrower I'd want to lend to. And I was like, you know what, if you can give me like a week or two weeks to kind of get everything situated, I'll figure it out and I'll, I'll fund this loan and we'll make this happen. And then it's, it just took off from there. Wow. Wow. That, that's an incredible story. Wow. <laughs> Going from chemistry to private lending. It, it, that's actually really funny. So um, private lending, and you mentioned hard money lending. If we can start there for those listeners who are like, what's, what are those? What's the difference? You can kind of explain the difference between hard money and private money. Yes. And people like to use those two terms very interchangeably. And in my mind, they are two very different things. So it's it's my (laughs) definition. It's my definition, not everyone's definition, but uh, it really boils down to the source of the capital and who can pay, you know, finally hit the final yes, fund this deal button. So in private lending, you are dealing with usually individuals that are operating as an entity. Maybe they've pooled kind of, you know, five people have pooled together capital to form an LLC to lend out of. And they are basically the people that are the decision makers. They are doing the processing. They are doing the underwriting. They are generally, you know, driving by the property or, you know, looking at inspections, you know, to see how far renovations have come. Whereas hard money lenders, their money comes with stipulations because they are funded through hedge funds out of New York, warehouse lines of credit from big banks, you know, whatever syndication, you know. So basically they sold people on a business model that said all our borrowers and all our properties shall check all these boxes to make sure the loan is quote unquote safe. And then therefore you're good placing your capital with us in this opportunity. So if you are a borrower, and that you don't meet all those check boxes, the hard money lender cannot do the loan. Whereas a private lender, you know, for instance, most don't even check your credit. We don't care what the credit score is, you know? Right. So if you have, you know, a 620 and your hard money lender requires a 660, they can't do the loan because it's, le- it's really against their business model on what they've sold their investors. Right, okay, yeah, that was, that was a perfect explanation. I pretty much think of it the same way. Private money in my mind is more like, uh, you know, it could be a friend, uncle, coworker, um, or it could be a small group of people. And then the hard money to me is like, all right, you're, you're going to a company that's funded by, by big money. They both have the same, I guess, you know, they both can do the same thing, but you know, they both have their kind of the pros and cons. Like, like you yeah. mentioned, hard money has a lot of strict requirements you have to hit private money. It's like, all right, well, think about their requirements for a friend or a coworker. They're not as sophisticated or even if they are, they might just have different requirements because they don't have huge hedge, fund, hedge funds behind them, making sure they hit A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. So yeah. that was an awesome explanation that, there. I would say that the beauty of private lending and also its curse is the flexibility you have. So for example, um, my borrowers, I can give them the option of not making any interest only payments during, you know, because my loans are only out usually three, four months. Um, so they can pay a little bit higher interest rate on the back end and not make monthly payments. And I have not had a borrower turn that down yet, but right. I guarantee you a hard money lender is not gonna, not gonna offer you those terms. No. Um, and you know, there's various things. I think the one thing that other people get confused with private lending between hard money lending and private lending is they'll, they'll come up and you know, send me a message or send an email or whatever and be like, what's your rates? And I'm like, that's not the way this works. You know, it's, it's very much a relationship model. You know, we the downside to private lending is it tends to be very um, relationship based, and it tends to be kind of a limiting factor is the amount of capital we have to to 
lend out. I mean, because it's our own capital or capital we have direct control over. So it tends to be like once you find a private lender, you want to work with them over and over and over again, you know, because that's what happens with my borrowers. It just rolls from deal to deal to deal because we have that history. We have that trust. Whereas hard money lending is very transactional and it tends to be very liquid. You know, they have millions and billions of dollars behind them. So if it's something where, you know, you think your, your private lender might not have the capital available in time, you can still use hard money at some point. It's not to say we're not trying to vilify hard money at all. It's just, it's got its pros and cons, just like private For sure. lending. For sure. So if you can walk us through that first deal, you mentioned it was COVID, you met, you know, you knew somebody who needed some money. What did that deal actually look like from your side? Because typically we're always talking about the actual active investor side, you know, they find the deal, they, they fix it up. But how does it look from your side as the private money lender? So that one was kind of interesting. He uh, originally was going to buy the property outright with the hard money loan. He actually went back to the seller and the seller agreed to do a subject to deal for four months. So I actually ended up coming back um, with a second lien, a second lien position hold. So I was a second mortgage on that property. And basically I was just funding the renovations and a couple months of the holding costs for the first mortgage. So whereas an active investor is going to walk into the deal and, you know, really worry about the ARV, the condition of the property, um, you know, negotiating with the seller, organizing all the contractors, you know, what's their time frame, what's the supply chain look like um, as a private lender? Yes, we're still concerned about what the potential after repair value looks like. We're less concerned about, you know, locating the contractors and, you know, yes, we're going to take a look at the scope of work and make sure you're that your plans for the property are adequate or sufficient for the property and the market that it's in. Um, but really we are looking at, in my opinion, I'm looking at the borrower more than I'm looking at the property. There are other private lenders that switch that around. So I call it kind of that 80, 20. So 80% is the borrower, 20% is the property for me, but I've met other private lenders where it's the, the exact opposite, where it's 80% the property and 20% the borrower. But my philosophy is the property's not going to renovate itself. The property's not going to rent itself. The property's not going to sell itself. It's the person doing that. So I really want to get to know them as a person. Um, I talk to them frequently. If it weren't COVID, I'd be going over to their house for barbecues. You know, I know all their kids' names. Um, so it's really, it's very much a relationship-based model. Um, so we, I really got to know him. I got to talk to him. You know, he's an active duty service member. You know, we just kind of hit it off as organic, you know, friends and people. And I love Facebook stalking people when I have a new <laughs> potential borrower. So pro tip number one, if you're getting into real estate, make a real estate specific Facebook profile. I don't want to see pictures of you out drinking with the buddies on Friday night. <laughs> so I Facebook stalked him, you know, friend request, and then I'm scrolling through and it was you know, people want to invest with people that they know, like, and trust. And so I'm scrolling through and I'm seeing pictures of like his dog and his kids and his kids on vacation. You know, there's not a whole lot of like flashing cash in front of an Italian sports car they rented for the day kind of thing. Uh, you know, so I was like, okay, I get the nice warm and fuzzies, you know, yes, you can put on a face and a facade on, on Facebook, but right. that's just kind of one of the tools I specifically use. But the other thing I do is I ask for professional references and I talk to those people and ask, you know, what was your experience with this particular person as far as a real estate investor, you know, were things paid, were they easy to get along with, da, 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 da. And that's really where, in my opinion, you're going to find the gold, you're going to find the truth. 
because it might feel like everybody's involved in real estate, but in actuality, it tends to be a really small community. So right. if you start burning bridges with other people in real estate, everybody else is going to find out very, very quickly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so that's why I really like the professional references. Um, obviously, we're collecting other documentation, you know, making sure they have the assets on board to do these types of things. They have the experience. But to me, it's really about the character of the person. So can they make good logical decisions in a timely basis? You know, and we tend to have the same goals. That's the other thing I really like about private lending versus being a landlord. Um, you know, private lenders, we are in collaboration with the active investor. We both right. want the same thing. We both want the property renovated. We both want the property sold. We both want the property refinanced. Whereas, you know, in the landlord situation, it tends to have very opposite goals. You know, the, the renter wants to live in a Taj Mahal for $10 a month. <laughs> and, you know, the landlord wants the maximum, you know, they can get for rent with the minimum expenses. Um, so it just doesn't set, it sets up more of an adversarial relationship than, than doing private lending, um, which is what I like. It's, it's really about it, real estate investing, since you're talking to kind of newer people and, you know, people that want to break it down. There's so many ways to invest in real estate. And I think the one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is find a way of investing that fits your personality. Yeah. I hated being a landlord because I don't want to have those adversarial drama fueled relationships in my life. Whereas private lending, I get the exact opposite. It's very collaborative. We're friends. We can make deals happen. Um, you know, like I said, we both have the same goals. So I think when you're talking to people about real estate investing, especially new people, that needs to be the first question. Because if you sign yourself up for a, a Burr boot camp and you show up at the Marriott over the weekend to learn all you can about Burr, you know, nobody's going to talk to you about uh, is Burr the right method for you and your goals and your personality. Right. They're just going to teach you about Burr. Um, and so I think that that previous step really needs to happen before somebody takes the leap into real estate investing. Yeah, hundred percent. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I had a similar experience when I was getting started. I would just follow a lot of the, a lot of the gurus on social media. I got sucked in a little bit. People just saying, you oh, know, this is the way to go. If you want to make a, I got sucked in, but it didn't really actually align with my goals right now. So hundred percent, whatever you're going to do in real estate, just know, okay, do you need, you know, what are you actually looking to get out of it as far as like money, as far as lifestyle, because different strategies have different outcomes uh, in the short term and the long term. So definitely a key there. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's just, it's just really funny because I, I run into people and most of the time in real estate, when they're investing in real estate, they say they want to quit their W-2 job. You know, that's kind of the most they, they want, they quote unquote financial freedom but they don't have a clarity on what financial freedom looks like for them. They haven't sat down and for example, even looked at what their expenses are on a monthly right. basis. Um, and the other thing is they, they want finance. They say they want financial freedom, but in reality, what they really want is time freedom and potentially geographical freedom and right. doing a private lending business. I call it a business in a backpack because really, you know, as a military spouse, if my spouse gets stationed somewhere that I'm willing to move to, um, you know, I could just pick up the computer and take it as long as I have air conditioning, electricity and a phone, I can do private lending from anywhere in the world. <laughs> right. So um, I think that's another component that people kind of don't really think about is they just say financial independence, but they don't have a clear idea what that means, because technically you could run, you know, 20 single family homes as a landlord in the same market. But that is not a passive investment. You might have enough right. to you know, cover your monthly bills, but 
you're running around from property to property, fixing a leak, doing this, moving people out, doing inspections, screening tenants, you know, that's, that's technically financial independence, but that might not be what you were looking for. Right. Right. Exactly. So bringing it back to that first deal you did, um, you mentioned it was a subject to, you came up with the uh, mortgage payments and the rehab costs. Can you explain or talk about the actual numbers, how much you put into the deal, if you're comfortable and what you got back in return? Sure. So he actually ended up taking the property subject to, I believe the standing mortgage was 104,000 roughly. We projected an ARV of about 265. So there was plenty of equity in the deal, which is why I was willing to do a subject to, um, I'm personally kind of against them, but that's another episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was willing to go in behind a, a, behind a conventional mortgage because even at that point, you know, we were probably in April by that point, um, the mortgage companies were freaking out trying to deal with forbearance issues. So realistically, even if he stopped making the mortgage payment on that conventional mortgage, they were not foreclosing anytime soon because they had right. more than their hands full. So that was the reason I was comfortable doing a second lien position. Um, you know, like I said, the borrower, I felt very comfortable with, you know, his, his references all checked out. He had the capital, he had the experience. Um, and there was plenty equity buffer in there for me to say, okay, I'm comfortable doing a second mortgage on this property. Uh, I lent him, I believe the first loan was 47, 47.5. And that was going to be doing things like putting on a new roof, putting in new flooring, updating the kitchen, um, adding another bathroom to the home so that it actually had a true master bathroom. Um, and then doing some landscaping work on the outside. And really it was supposed to be just kind of an in and out project because I don't want to fund, I've, I'm very specific in what I want to fund and most private lenders are. So I want to fund things that are going to be thrown up on the market for a retail buyer versus somebody that's trying to burr and refinance it into their own name. Um, so, and I also want to do something that I would personally kind of consider a minor to moderate rehab. I don't want like major structural changes. You're changing right. the roof line. Like that just the way that, um, you know, the supply chain is going with COVID right now, it's, I, I don't want to be involved in a property for six, nine months because we're waiting on something or, you know, right. somebody's backlogged. Um, so 100, 104 first mortgage, about 47.5 was the second mortgage. And then I gave, again, I gave him the option of just doing all the interest at the end. So the renovation fairly, you know, actually went really, really well because he has his own crew that he just kind of moves from flip to flip to flip. So nothing really eventful there to talk about, which was nice. And then he put it on the market. The, it hit the market, I believe the middle of uh, May. So right at kind of like the prime PCS, you know, military move yeah. season. Um, so went off the market very quickly, especially in this particular very hot market. Um, and it's, ended up going till I want to say the middle of July because a couple borrowers actually did not qualify for their conventional financing. So it ended up going from to like the second offer to the third offer, uh, finally closed. And then I got my capital back, uh, probably the middle of July, the retail buyer got a brand, basically a brand new house. He did a lot of work on that property in a short period of time. And then he got to do a deal you know, that he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, he would have lost out on it because the hard money lender kind of backed out and said, you know, yeah, I don't want to, I, I don't want to fund this. Um, right. So, I mean, it really kind of ended up being a win-win-win for everybody. The family absolutely loves the home. They're actually still in contact with my borrower. You know, that's how much they love the home because uh, he did a really good job on that place. Awesome. So a couple of clarifying questions I have. So you mentioned subject two, which is a whole strategy. 
that we're not going to get too deep into now. But so he bought a subject to, so essentially the, the, the seller, the, the homeowner, he was almost financing that piece. You and the active investor came in with the rehab cost. And then in a subject to, I'm just curious who actually sold the property. Was it your uh, borrower or was it the homeowner? So he actually took title to the property. So okay. he was the owner and then uh, he sold it. The first mortgage was paid off and the second mortgage was paid off so that the new retail buyer could get clear gotcha. title to the property and put their mortgage on it. Gotcha. Okay. And then the other thing you mentioned is first lien, first position, second position. You kind of break down what the difference is between those two. Sure. So first lien or first mortgage is generally the mortgage that you are going to take out to purchase a property. Um, if you've owned it for a number of years, you do something like a cash out refinance, you know, that's going to be a first lien. So a second lien is going to be something that comes in that's less, uh, it's lower down on the totem pole than the first mortgage. So if something goes wrong and the property has to be foreclosed and sold at auction, for example, that first mortgage holder is going to get their money first. And then whoever happens to be second lien, third lien, if there's like tax liens or anything like that, some of those things can come up in front of the first lien position, but generally it's paid, you know, first mortgage, second mortgage. Um, so being in the second lien position, it does have its disadvantages. So it's not something to kind of just willy nilly in this particular deal. Like I said, right. there was tons of tons of equity. And I was in a position where if we did have to foreclose, I could take on, you know, the $104,000, you know, mortgage payment um, if I had to. Right. Okay. Awesome. Perfect explanation. So then getting back to the deal itself, it took about three to four months, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then talk about how you actually, the different ways or, you know, way you got, you made money from the deal. Cause obviously the investor himself, he bought low, sold higher and, and he made some spread there, but what, how, how did you get paid as the private lender? So again, the flexibility there, everybody does it a little differently. And I, I do it a little differently per deal, but this particular deal, um, I just did 10% flat. So I earned 10% on my money in that three to four month time span. So I lent him, I think the 47.5 was his first loan. Um, and then so 10% of that is $4,750. So I actually got paid that interest as part of the sale up for the retail buyer. So it ended up working out really well for the active investor because his retail buyer actually ended up paying the interest for his loans. Gotcha. So did you... That, that 47, that, that 10%, if, if, if the project went on six months, 10 months, would you still be getting the same percentage? Would you still be getting that 47.50? So what I did was I, I added in what I call a COVID kicker as a, as a clause. <laughs> so if it had to be extended, it actually changed the loan terms. So that we would do extensions by every 30 days. And then at that point, he was making 1% interest only payments uh, past the, I think the first loan was for uh, four months. So past that four month time frame, you know, it was going to be 1% a month interest only up to having the loan for six months. Gotcha. So you did have a four month term, four month balloon, but with yes. some clauses to kind of kick it down the road. Okay. Yeah. Because so supply chain during COVID is really causing some havoc. Uh, I had one borrower that was waiting for windows for four months. Like he, he showed me the receipt. He, he literally ordered windows the day he closed you know, really good borrower, really good person. He's like, I know this is going to be an issue. So I ordered them that day. 
and he renovated the whole place, put it up on MLS. The sale was contingent upon the property having brand new windows by closing, wow. which is kind of how we did that. But yeah, I ended up waiting for four months for windows wow. for him. <laughs> That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. Do you do any origination fees? I know that there's other private lenders who make money other ways besides just interest. There are people who do points. Do you do any of that or just interest? Uh, I personally just do interest. It's it's just, it, to me, it's simpler bookkeeping. And I'm also, as a private lender, going back to the collaborative nature, you don't want to set the borrower up for failure. You know, you obviously want to protect yourself, but you're kind of in it together. Right. So I feel like paying a bunch of capital, since I only fund fix and flips, they're hemorrhaging money for the first like two months they own this place. Right. So me causing more money to be coming out the door very early on in the project is not helpful to my borrower, in my opinion. Right. You know, no, other makes... people, other people might not think that. I, I know other <laughs> people are like, there's no way I would do those terms. And that's fine. That's again, kind of the flexibility of private lending. Um, but again, I'm going back to the person. Do I trust this person? Do I know this person? Do I like this person? Do they have a good reputation in the real estate space? If they do, I'm not as worried about like, oh, you know, they paid two, 2% origination points. Like I want them to continue to come back to do deals with me because it's less work on me. I don't have to underwrite the borrower every single time they have a deal. They can just text message me an address, how much they need, when they need it by, and I can go yes or no, you know, so yeah. um, going back to that partnership, it, it really pays off literally. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. So you mentioned, like you, you just said, you know, they text you an address, you do some due diligence and you say yes or no. What does that process actually look like on your end? It can be a little bit different for everyone. It's very similar to the underwriting process someone might experience if they're buying their first home. You know, they're going to want to see, you know, you as a borrower, you know, identification, you know, make sure that the person I'm talking to is the person I'm actually lending money to. Um, clear title. So we want to make sure we get, a, we get a copy of the title policy to make sure the title is clear and we're comfortable with the exceptions that are in there. Um, depending on the project, some private lenders might require a full-blown appraisal but most require, you know, some sort of like CMA, you know, comparative market analysis that an active borrower can just, you know, pull a broker friend and say, hey, can you do this for me for a couple bucks? Um, and then the private lender is usually going to go and kind of establish their own ARV, looking at the market a little bit, like what, what's happened here. Um, and then you're really looking for things like, do they actually have the capital to do this project? You know, if the renovation is 45000 I'm not giving them $45,000 at closing. They are actually going to do a, a chunk of the project, maybe $15,000 worth of renovations. And then they're going to submit to me or to the title company. Well, to me, and then I issued the title company say, hey, yeah, disperse 15,000. Um, so they are getting a, what I call a refund draw model. So they need to have you know, a good chunk of change somewhere to get the renovation started. And then as stuff is completed and installed and the mechanics liens are waivers signed off, then we can go ahead and say, okay, here's your refund. And then they can kind of start process two, process three. So there is some capital requirements that we're looking for. Um, and again, just, it really boils down to reputation. If you, if you start talking to past partners or brokers or whatever, and you kind of, and they're like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've tried to sell him like six houses and he backs out at the last minute and like, okay, right. wait a minute here. <laughs> yeah. And so do you have a certain percentage you like to use, or is it just on a per deal basis? You kind of choose a number of how much capital they actually need to come with? Um, it's really kind of on a per deal basis. So for example, in the, that very first deal, 
because there was so much equity, if you did the traditional, you know, 70% after repair value, you potentially could be ending up giving them more money than they actually need, which you don't right. want. Right. Um, so as far as maximums, I want to stay between like the 70, 75% ARV range. It's the, the terms tend to be very similar to hard money, um, you know, other than the, you know, interest only payments being able to be delayed and other things. Um, so, I mean, it's really kind of on a per deal basis in that particular borrower. So if you're looking at like risk mitigation strategies, if you want to do private lending, you know, it's really, you know, okay, how much experience does the borrower have? If they don't have a lot of experience, risk goes up. If they don't have a lot of capital, risk goes up, you know, where versus if they do 50 flips a year and they have their own contractor team and everything else, risk goes down, you know, there's right. still risk, but risk goes down. So you kind of price it in almost, you know, and say, okay, you know, for this particular deal, it's going to be 10% flat and versus another borrower where I may not have that close of a relationship with, but I really like the deal be like, okay, I, I want some interest only payments every month. Right. Okay. Mate, that makes total sense. So catch us up to speed a little bit of where the private lending, where your private lending business is now. I know you, you've done that, you know, you started with that first one about a little over a year ago now, year and a yeah. couple months, catch us up to where you're at now. So I'm uh, currently finishing a book about private lending because one of the reasons, the whole reason I'm probably in front of you right now is because I started a group called Private Lending Lessons. Because during COVID, I was an extrovert stuck inside. If you get 10 words out of my spouse at once, that's a chatty Kathy day. So I was losing my mind. So I, I went looking to social media to go find other groups of people because I couldn't be the only one doing this. You know, for example, Bigger Pockets talks about private lending. They say, go find a private lender to fund your deal. But then there's like this whole crowd of people that are like, and then what? <laughs> so I went looking for other people, you know, just people to talk to, talk shop. You know, there's landlord groups, there's fix and flip groups, there's burr groups. And every single group I joined had nothing to do with net networking or education about private lending. And then the more active investors I talked to, I realized how little education they had about private lending. I'm like, holy crap, you know, we need to make this a little more, you know, out there. So people, so borrowers have realistic expectations and private lenders are safe because I've right. seen both of them get scammed many, many times. Right. So I started, somebody is like, you need to start a group. And I'm like, I spent eight years in college and I never took a marketing class or a graphic design class. Why am I going to start a group? And they said, well, you know, people need this information. They need to know, you know, how to do this safely. They need to know how to avoid scams. And I'm like, all right, fine. So literally on a whim, I just started the group. And then like a week later at a hundred people and I was like, oh crap, <laughs> now I have to do something, you know? And it just kind of kept growing and growing. And now it's just South of 6,000 people in a little over a year. And it's awesome. just kind of become this movement where I've actually talked to people who quit their W-2 job and are doing private lending full-time. I've talked to wow. other military spouses that have done that. And I'm like, this has become a thing. Like it's, it's amazing. And I've talked to people who have met private lenders through the group. I've talked to people who have met active borrowers through the group. I met a business partner through the group, you know? So, wow. I mean, it's just, it's just been kind of the power of coming together and saying, look, I don't know how to do this, or I have a question about this. And then that engages in conversation. And then you're like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. And you just, it it's sparks a way to meet people in this space. Right. Okay. Awesome. That's, that's super powerful. And the power of social media is definitely real. So I feel you there. Um, you mentioned yet you've had people go full-time and, you know, 
you, you, you've talked to people and now they're full-time uh, lender, private money lenders. So the biggest question that pops my mind, I'm sure the listeners too is, wow, do I need a million dollars to start? How do I get, how do I get full-time? So if you can kind of take it from there. Um, yeah, take it from there. There's so many ways to build a business in private lending. I mean, it's, it's really one of those wonderful things about real estate. There's so many ways to do it. Well, private lending is no exception to that. You can scale it as big or as small as you want and pretty quickly, you know, in either direction. So if you get in there and you go wild and you're like, whoa, I got too much to do, you can reel it back in and say, okay, this is the level I want to be at. Um, so for example, I usually tell people, if you can start with about $50,000, you can do private lending. You know, it's, it's really starts with something as simple as that. If you did something that was say 12% interest, just to keep numbers simple, that means you'd be getting $500 a month in an interest only payment. Um, so, you know, you're private lending now. So you got mailbox money coming in, you know, hopefully you've done some screening with the borrower and the property. And that continues to be that way. And then, your money's paid back, you start the process over again. So it really can be as simple as starting with your old 401k that you turned into a self-directed IRA. And then that's your way of investing. It, it really, that's what I usually encourage people to do is do it with their own capital first, kind of learn the ins and outs. It doesn't have to be some big giant loan. It doesn't have to be some big giant renovation, you know, just get the feel for it and then, you know, do the process, ask questions. But then after that, um, you can start pooling capital in a variety of ways. You know, like I mentioned, you could have five individuals come together and form an LLC and then everybody puts $50,000 in and then you're able to do a $250,000 loan, for example. Um, you could do something, you know, raising capital through what most people consider the syndication model in multifamily 506B, 506C. There's a little more involved in that, but totally that's in your wheelhouse. There's another option where you could actually be a broker. So you could talk to other people. So if you're doing it and all your capital's you know, gone out, um, but you have a borrower you really like, you could go and say, hey, cousin, I know you have $50,000 sitting in your self-directed IRA. What do you think about this? And then you charge the borrower two origination points that comes to you. All the interest goes to your cousin. You know, So right. again, there's there's a lot of different kind of laws and ins and outs. So I don't want anybody to think, yay, I can go and broker. Like it's really something you need to look into, but there's right. brokering private money is definitely a business model. Um, you could do white label funding once you have, you know, your established kind of loan, what they call loan tape, um, you know, history of loans successfully done, deployed and come back in. Uh, I mean, it's just really kind of unlimited, you know, just really depending on how busy you want to be or how busy you don't want to be. Right. So for those who are like, whoa, this sounds cool, brokering money, I, you know, all this great access, where does someone start to learn about that? What are some really, it's That's exactly why I started the group, because there really were none. There's a total of like four books on Amazon right now about private lending. To me, none of them are very good. Um, one is extremely basic. One reads like a VCR encyclopedia. It's terrible. Um you know, the other two are kind of, eh, but there's not a lot of clear cut action steps. Um, so, which is why I'm doing the book now, book's almost done because people just don't have the action steps to say, here's what you need first. Here's the documentation you need. Here's the information you're looking for on that documentation. Um, so, I mean, it's really has to be something that you can either know someone who's doing it, or you can kind of get into, you know, some sort of like mastermind or mentor group, or just have someone else doing private lending to bounce questions off of. Right. Okay. Very cool. 
So then the other thing I want to touch on, because you mentioned, you know, there's tons of different ways to pool capital. One of them is the syndication model. So typically in multifamily, we always hear, you know, passive investors come in, they get a six or 8% preferred return. Anything above that goes to the active investor. So if you can kind of translate the, that model and what, what it actually looks like for private lending. Sure. So in that case, that's going to be an equity pool because the capital coming together is basically going towards down payment and closing costs. So it's going to be equity in the property. Right. When you're doing a fund for private lending, it's considered a debt pool. So you are not on title to a property. You're not getting like an equity split when the property is sold. It tends to be more of a model where you're getting that preferred return. And then, you know, the maybe the person who's running the fund is getting like asset management fee or that maybe they keep the origination points and you guys get all the interest. So there's there's still ways to do it, but you're just not involved in the equity capital stack for uh, for a specific property. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And I know you mentioned you're toying around, not toying around, you're 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 choosing, you know, which way you want to go with your private lending business. If you can kind of talk about what you've decided on, why, and kind of the ins and outs. Sure. So we have gotten kind of to the point where our capital is deployed, um, but our borrower base keeps growing. So, you know, we're like, okay, we kind of know what we're doing. We have trustworthy borrowers. Um, I would like to continue that collaborative relationship with my borrowers. And so, Kind of investigating there's different things called regulation a plus which you can raise up to 75 million dollars in a year so at that point like you can advertise publicly you know you can raise up to 75 million but it's probably going to cost you about two hundred fifty thousand just to get the fund up and running you know between wow. the legal and everything else you need so and also then if you have managed to get 75 million you then have to deploy 75 million in a responsible right. way and that's that's a more than a full-time job which i didn't want i was like nope nope <laughs> Thank you, but no thank you. Um, I would say kind of the next tier down would be um, the 506 syndication model that most people are probably familiar with. It's 506B or 506C. With that one, depending on which route you choose, you know, you can do some advertising if you do 506C, but you the capital amount you raise is technically unlimited. And, you know, it generally doesn't have that time length expiration. So for example, regulation A plus, is only raising capital for 12 months and then you close the fund down and then you got to do it all over again. Right. Um, you can't get an extension, but generally that's what happens. Um, you know, whereas 506C, it's something that you can have just open-ended. You say, okay, I have this fund, you know, whenever we get enough capital or we get enough borrowers, whatever it is, we could close it out and potentially start another one or just work with that capital. The other option that's kind of out there in SEC world is called Title III. It's crowdfunding. You can raise up to $5 million a year. Um, you can advertise publicly. You know, it tends to be pretty easy to get up and running and started and because you can advertise publicly. Um, not terribly expensive to get up and running. A lot of people in real estate tend not to like it because it's only $5 million, you know? So that's, it's like, okay, you know, realistically, can I get a profitable, scalable business with $5 million a year? If that is yes for you, then do it. But for a lot of people, it's, it's a no. Um, there's other kind of things that you can do. You know, like I mentioned, pooling capital in some sort of LLC, you can have a manager managed um, LLC member as opposed to a member managed LLC. Um, where everybody kind of has equal share versus just a manager membered or manager managed LLC where it's just a manager running things. Um, so, I mean, it's really, again, just going back to what are, 
what are your requirements? I'm not trying to work myself into another 40 hour a week job. Right. I love what I do. I would like to continue what I do, but I'm not trying to work myself into another 40 hour a week job because I, I need that time freedom and that geographical freedom for my life. So right. when people talk about like, oh, I'm going to start a fund or I want to do a fund, it's like, do you really understand what you're asking for? Because <laughs> it's a major responsibility to take on other people's capital. You right. know, so you, you really need to be committed and doing this full time or at least have a team in place that is doing this full time and committed and ready to do it. Right. For sure. Um, another distinction I wanted to, a quick question I had was on the syndication route with the 506B and 506C, let's just say you pool money together, right? You have a million bucks. You just deployed a million bucks and to one, one project. They sold the property and you got all the money back. They paid you back interest and everything. Do you just give your investors the interest or do you give them back, you know, their capital plus interest? And, and is there, is there capital kind of stuck in there for a certain amount of time or what, how does that look like? That could actually be all of the above. So that's why it's very, very important, just like in a syndication for multifamily to read the PPM and the subscription right. agreement. Um, some debt pools, I'd say most debt pools, um, they require you to have your capital in there for, you know, a couple of years, kind of at a minimum. Um, right. Some have the agreement that if you give them enough forewarning that you could potentially pull your capital out early kind of thing. So that's definitely something to ask, you know, when you're looking at the PPM agreement or ask the operators and say, you know, hey, if I happen to need my $100,000 before the three-year term, you know, what happens? Is that possible? What does that look like? Because that could be everything under the sun from, nope, sorry, you're locked in to sure, give us 90 days notice and we'll make it happen. Right. Okay. Awesome. 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 So Alex, we're now going to move on to the next section of our show, which is known as the big four. And this is where we ask all of our guests the same four questions. So number one, Alex, what's your number one habit for success? Oh man. Oh, that's a tough one. I would <laughs> honestly say um, talking to people. I, when, when the pandemic first started, I had a goal of talking. I don't know why it was nine. I forgot why it was nine, but <laughs> talk to nine new people a week, um, you know, and I would kind of document those conversations and network and connections. And, you know, a year and a half later, it's, it's amazing how many people I've talked to over that, that time frame just from talking to nine people a day, like or nine people a week. Um, right. So it's, it's really been, I would say that is just talking to people. You learn something new every time you talk to someone like right. I, I will never proclaim. I know everything about private lending. I'm not a private lending guru because every time I talk to a different private lender, I learn some little tweak, some little thing. And I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know, you know, right. some States that's legal, some States it's not legal. You know, Hey, did you do this? No, I did that. You know? So it's really when the more you can talk to people, I think the, the better off, more well-rounded you're going to be in learning various topics. You know, I'll talk right. to people at multifamily syndication, <laughs> even though I do private lending because I have an interest in it, but it, it's also down the same rabbit hole as pooling capital. So if right. I'm talking to a multifamily syndicator, I'm talking to them about, you know, how did you pool capital? Why did you do B over C? You know, those types of things. That's still relevant to me, even though right. I'm not a multifamily operator. Right. Awesome. Very true. <laughs> so Question number two, limiting beliefs are thoughts in our heads that hold us back from realizing our potential. What is one limiting belief that you were able to crush and how did that impact your life? That one, oh my gosh, that one I'm still working on. <laughs> so I would say, um, I feel like this is probably very strong amongst women, especially in real estate is imposter syndrome. 
So, you know, I really feel like people are like, oh, you're an expert in this. I'm like, no, not really. Like I've done a couple loans. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I run a group. Not okay. Not a big deal. I tend to minimize what I've been yeah. doing. Um, and I think just really talking to other, again, going back to talking to other people, they're like, what are you talking about? Like how many people start a group and it's 6,000 people a year later. I'm like, I don't know. Cause you, never, <laughs> you know, I don't talk to other people that run groups. Right, <laughs> so, right. Um, so I would say it's really a matter of just kind of your, what most people tend to do is they tend to think that their experience is normal because that's all they yeah. know. So whatever I'm experiencing is normal, but if I'm trying to get to that above normal or that above average, it always feels like a constant struggle because wherever I am, I'm at normal because that's my normal. (laughs) Um, So I think that's where the imposter syndrome comes from. So really having that kind of analytical conversation with me, you know, honestly, this is, you're going to die laughing. One of my friends, I was talking to my friends about this and they're like, you need to go to Walmart. I'm like, why do I need to go to Walmart? And they're like, just, just walk around Walmart for like 10 minutes. (laughs) that's the average American. And I'm like, right. <laughs> oh, you know, so <laughs> that's right. what led us down the rabbit hole of like your, your experience, you tend to normalize your experience and think everybody else has the same experience. And then when you go to reach for more, you're still stuck with yourself and that's your new normal. And it just continues and continues. Right. So true. Something that I, that I, that I'm, that I deal with too. I think a lot of people do. It's like, yeah, I'm just doing what I'm doing. Is, is that, is it? Yeah. And then people are like, Oh, that's awesome. You're like, yeah, it's, it's good, but like, it's normal. So I'm, I'm with yes. you totally on that one <laughs> for sure. So Alex, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Oh, I'm really hoping my spouse is retired from the military by then. Cause I'm really <laughs> tired of moving, <laughs> but uh, realistically um, we want the geographical freedom and the time freedom that this particular style investing is going to offer because we have not spent any significant time with our family over the past 21 years, because we haven't even lived in the same time zone as most of them for the last 21 years. Um, So we don't have children. We're one of the, we're the fun aunt and uncle. So we want to spend time with our nieces and nephews. They're, you know, the oldest is 10, the youngest is one right now. So we want to be, take them to Disney. You know, we want the capability to take them to Disney, take them on a cruise, you know, show them the Grand Canyon, take them for the summer, you know, on an art cross-country RV trip. Um, So it's really going to be about spending time with family in the next five to 10 years. Love it. Love it. Last question. Number four is any last message you want to leave to the listeners, whether it's about private money lending, anything you've done to this point, one last message for the listeners. I would say, you know, obviously join the group, the group's called private lending lessons, but not so much just to join the group, but to kind of get the networking and experience and just learning more about private lending, whether you are an active borrower or a someone that's interested in doing private lending, or maybe this is something you did and you didn't even know it was called private lending. Right. You're like, <laughs> I just gave my brother $30,000 to do this deal. It's like, okay, you know, you know that it worked out great, but now what do I do? Um, Cause a lot of people don't realize that's also private lending. And it's a great way to kind of formalize what you're doing and potentially scale up what you're doing. Right. Um, but I would say just take that next step and that next step doesn't have to be a leap. It can literally be just a baby six inch baby step up to the next stair. And then once right. you're kind of there, you take the next step. Cause I I'll freely admit, I had no idea what I was doing when I started this. None, <laughs> none, no zero. And I was just like, okay, let's do this today. And let's do this today. And I think right. people severely underestimate the power of doing one step a day and then where your life could be 365 days from now, because now you're 365 steps 
from where you started and you're going in a purposeful direction. So I tell people, I don't need to know all the stairs. I don't need to need all, all the steps. I just need to be able to take the next one or two and have a rough idea of what the next three and four are. Right. Yeah, that's totally true. And, and it's such a great message. So last thing is where can the listeners get a hold of you? I know you mentioned the Facebook group. What was the name of that one? The It's called Private Lending Lessons and it's on Private Facebook. Um, should be able to be searchable. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. So just Alex Brashears. Um, my URL is, is very much my personal mantra. I invest passively to live actively. So my URL reflects that <laughs> uh, in, uh, in LinkedIn. Um, and then I'm on the Facebook group all the time. So feel free to join the group and then send me a message. We have weekly educational events about private lending. Uh, we have daily discussion points. We have monthly networking events. So if you awesome. are doing private lending, you can kind of be quote unquote in the room, you know, with other people that are doing this and kind of talk shop and what do you do in this experience? What are you doing in that experience and compare notes? Awesome. Sounds like a super cool group and definitely something I got to join because private lend lending is something that I've used, but also something that could be a cool opportunity to actually, um, do and you know be part of so awesome thank you so much alex for coming on the show today i learned a ton about private lending different structures i didn't even know existed and cool to hear your journey just started about a year and a couple months ago a year and a half or so and seeing where you are now is incredible i know that the the, the facebook group you're giving a lot of great content out i'm going to be joining that right after we hang up here so again thanks again alex thank you so much for having me bailey i really enjoyed it Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. For more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.baileykramer.com. We'll see you next time.